you know, there are some rules about what a company has to do if they lose your data. There are very few rules about what a company has to do when they use your data. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Okay, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. So this week, we have Rasa's daddy. Okay, who the heck is that? Well, Rasa is a friend of my daughter's, and her dad, Jeremy Smith, just wrote a super interesting book. Jeremy is a Missoula resident and graduate of the University of Montana's Master's of Fine Arts program. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Discover, and The New York Times, and his recently released book, Breaking and Entering, The Extraordinary Story of a Hacker Called Alien, is a fascinating and deeply reported narrative account of the life of Sherry Davidoff, another Missoula resident and founder-CEO of LMG Security, a firm dedicated to, what else? Cybersecurity. Jeremy's book is as riveting as it is informative. I enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed talking to him all about it, and I hope you enjoy our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So full disclosure, this is take two with Jeremy, and it was entirely my fault. Uh, Although I probably could have released that episode because I did everything right except I didn't activate my mic. Your mic was working great, and you know maybe that would have been a better podcast to just put your audio out there and cut myself out completely. The the monologue, the unintentional monologue. Exactly. You got hacked. There we go. I got hacked, so we'll get to that. So Jeremy, you have this new book out, Breaking and Entering, The Extraordinary Story of a Hacker Called Alien. Um, the book came out in January, if I'm correct. That's right. Brand ha- new. How's it been doing? Uh, great. Went to New York and Boston and San Francisco and Seattle and Missoula and Chicago. So I think those are like the five most important Seems like cities. you covered it. Yeah. yeah, it's like you're one of the Democratic candidates for office, right? There you go. <laughs> so um, before we get into the book, you also got to talk at some pretty cool places in, on that trip. You did a talk at Google, is that right? Yeah, I gave a talk at a Google office in Bellevue, Washington. I was able to get snuck into Apple and talk to some folks there. Uh, How do you in sneak Cooper into Dino. Apple? Is that like part of the shtick with hacking? Well, all the walls are glass. So right. <laughs> you just sort of you know act like you're on the inside and no one can tell what the inside and the outside is. It's sure. California anyway. So people just sort of migrated to me and I sort of slipped in when they came back. And all of a sudden I was in a conference room surrounded by uh, interested you know, readers or audience members at least. Awesome. Well, okay. Tell us, tell us about this book. It's about hacking. Um, you are, I don't know how you classify yourself as a writer, investigative journalist, investigative storyteller. Uh, how, first, yeah. What, how, how would you sort of categorize your writing? I like that investigative storyteller one. Uh, okay. I write nonfiction narratives, which is a fancy way of saying true stories. Mm-hmm. My niche within that is profiles, and I usually look for a topic where I can explore a person and follow their story and at the same time get into a whole field of knowledge or experience or industry and kind of cover that too. Yeah, and this is your third book. Yeah. You've got Growing a Garden City and Epic Measures, both similar in that respect. They follow sort of a central character but illuminate a a bigger issue that we should all be thinking about. Uh, the central issue in this current book, Breaking and Entering, is is hacking. Um, but hacking is is what I've learned through reading the book is not what I thought it was. And in fact, it goes 
back much further than computers. So tell us maybe about the history of this word and, and what, it, what it means and, and kind of um, why you found it interesting. Sure. So the book follows the true story of a female hacker whose hacker handle is alien. Mm-hmm. And when she's a freshman at MIT, she discovers this tradition of hacking at MIT that's over 100 years old that yeah, predates computers. Yeah, this is computers. like early 90s she's a student at MIT uh, or late 80s? Late, late 90s, actually. Late 90s, okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, 1998, I want to say, is her okay. freshman year. Okay. And meanwhile, there's a tradition of hacking that dates to the early 1900s. And Mm -hmm. it refers to physical exploration of building spaces and other kind of construction. So it could be going on a ledge or a rooftop or through a steam tunnel or up an elevator shaft or even on top of the great domes at MIT. And you pull a hack when that leads to an elaborate, ingenious prank that everyone can see. And there's this great tradition of those at MIT. Yeah. But you go hacking when you're just sort of exploring for its own sake and students in that subculture do that kind of day in, day out, sort of pushing the limits of where they can go and how much they can discover that even a building's own designers might not have known about. So there's these kind of, in, in the book, you paint such a rich picture of, of aliens' experiences. I mean, they are pushing the boundaries of, well, well past what, what would be considered safe. I mean, they're taking enormous risks, whether it's scaling an elevator shaft or or just simply Going into the unknown of these, these you know, the basements of upon basements upon basements of buildings, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's 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 not a safe endeavor. Yeah, I mean, one of the most famous hacks at MIT was the police car on the dome hack. Yeah, and so as an example, there's the you know a couple great domes at MIT that are sort of like the pantheon in Rome, mm-hmm. and to get a police car with flashing lights and I think even a box of Dunkin' Donuts on top (laughs) of the dome was one of the great feats of student pranking, you know, that you can imagine uh, across the United States or around the world. And and it's also like they never reveal the methods, right? Exactly. They don't get permission. They don't reveal the methods. But I hadn't thought, so I knew about that. I knew about other hacks, like getting a complete living room set, including like a lounge chair and a billiards table and a liquor cabinet and like a cat sitting on a dresser (laughs) upside down opposite the arch, uh, on the arch uh, opposite uh, the MIT Media Lab, or turning the tallest building on campus into a playable Tetris game. So I knew about some of those hacks, but I hadn't thought about the foundational skills yeah. needed to pull it off. You need to be able to sneak past guards. You need to be able to pick locks. You need to be able to walk along ledges. You need to be able to carry 50-pound backpacks. You need to be able to do this in the dark. You need to be able to assemble a police car with a small group of friends and then get down again all without being discovered. So yeah. that's not something you just decide to do after dinner one night. That's something that requires a huge amount of planning and also just sort of physical skills and preliminary explorations. Yeah, and a piece of that you mentioned there with a group of friends. I mean, it's not just independent operators here. I mean, some of it is that way, but but yeah, I mean, this is a cohesive team of people that, that it takes to pull off some of these things. Yeah, it's a very small but active subculture, and it was concentrated at the time on a particular hall in a particular building right. called Fifth East on the MIT campus, which has this sort of tradition. They call it roof and tunnel hacking, which is you're trying to get onto roofs, you're trying to get through tunnels. And they pull these hacks 
but that's much more rare. Often they're just going off for their own sake. They even have like Sharpies where they do what they call sign-ins, which okay. are kind of like graffiti, but instead of it being seen by the public, part of the ethos is you would only ever sign in a place that another hacker could see. If a mm. member of the public could see it, it's not worth signing. Right, in. right. So it'd be the, like the top of a crevice, you know, of an elevator shaft, or it'd be in a sort of electrical utility room in between two buildings that had been sort of tombed over, as they call it, you know, in sort of remodeling. Yeah, so, probably know, the more obscure, difficult a place to put your your sign in. Is that what you called it? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the better. Right. Right. So tell us about Alien's experience in this world and kind of how it shaped her experience. I mean, you dedicate a lot of the book to it, and it's so – I think it's 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 sort of time – such well spent, so well spent because you developed such a rich portrait of who this who this woman. Yeah, I mean is. that is the first quarter of the book, yeah. and it's what hacking means to her when she gets there. She's not, you know, immersed in computer culture. She's not, you know, sort of internet native in the way you know kids are today. And even compared to other MIT students, that's not her traditional interest or background. Right. She kind of, in a way, you know, almost applied to MIT on a dare, you could say, you know, by her parents and wrote a kind of creative, wildly imaginative essay mm -hmm. that got her to MIT. And when she was there, she was like, wow, these people are much more technical than I am. But she didn't let that intimidate her. She just plunged in. And so she starts in this physical hacking world that bleeds into what we call uh, loosely in the book brain hacking. There are people that are sort of pushing the limits of their minds with drugs and sure. other forms yeah, yeah. of exploration. Uh, you got some world-class chemists at MIT, including in the undergraduates. And uh, that moves to hacking as we better understand it today, computer security mm -hmm. or computer insecurity. She's on the first MIT network security team. She goes to Los Alamos National Laboratory. Right. She gets her computer skills beefed up considerably there. She ends up working at a major hospital in Boston, doing computer security for them, trying to keep the networks and the equipment safe. And then she gets a job essentially breaking and entering. She gets hired by a group of penetration testers, which are hackers that companies hire to try to test their security by breaking into them. Right. Come rob my bank. Exactly. Which is kind of the premise under which you sort of, that was your initial entry point into the story. You want to, we can maybe pull back and uh, tell us why you, you know, how you entered into this, into this particular project. Sure. So I didn't set out to write a book about hackers and hacking and just look for, you know, look, look for the person in a hoodie who's on the dark web. Yeah. Instead, I went to pick my daughter up uh, from preschool. And she was there. She was playing with another little girl who was new to her class. And the mom and I started talking. She said, what do you do? I said, I'm a writer. I talked about some of my projects for a while. And then I turned and said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, tomorrow morning I have to break into a bank. Right. And I realized this is the interesting person in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's time for, sure. for me to stop talking and start asking follow-up questions. And that's kind of what I did for the next two, three years. Yeah. I mean, at what point did you know, like, this is... Okay, this is going to be the next project. You know, it wasn't for close to a year. You know, okay. it was more play dates and get-togethers and kind of casual conversations. And I got the stories kind of piece by piece. And I think that slow build sort of starting as friends or at least parents of very young friends um, allowed us to be more comfortable with each other, have an easier rapport. And, you know, she was, in fact, thinking about writing a book and did write a book that's coming out soon, but mm -hmm. her book was much more technical. And she was asking my advice on sort of 
outlining it at the very beginning. And I said, this is a great topic. I think you'll have a huge business audience for it, but you should write a general book about yeah. your adventures. They're Her amazing. story is amazing. And she said, well, I would never write about myself. And I said, well, could I? Sure. Uh, and she kind of gave me some additional homework and reporting assignments, like going to a hacker convention in Vegas, going to MIT, having to scramble on the dome myself, stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, and when I came back, she said, all right, let's give it a try and we'll see if it works. Sure. And I suppose that whole process is, you know, building trust and authenticity. And um, yeah, and the interesting piece of that is the whole time you're reporting the book, including publication, she is only known by Alien. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was important to her not... It was funny. It was important to her for the story to be as truthful as possible. And for that, she felt it was necessary to protect the clients that she had had and certain family members, right? Sure. And certain friends. And so she said, I want this to be the unvarnished truth, warts and all, mm -hmm. scars and all. But I also, for that to happen, I need you to change identifying details. So names, some physical locations, a few dates slightly. But sure. other than that, it's basically true. I mean, someone asked me, well, was it really a guy? You know, and I was like, no, 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 this is... 99.9% .9 exactly what happened. I just had to change some names. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's nothing made up in that sense. And so, um, you know, up to publication, that was a concern and some of it still is, but she decided to kind of own it a bit more uh, afterward and even ended up on the Today Show. So yeah, that was, I mean, was kind of cool. You know, I had, so Sherry Davidoff, owner and founder of LMG Security, and we'll get to her firm here in a, in a little bit, but yeah. I mean, I had met Cherry and heard all about her and have students working at her company. And so I, it never occurred to me, Jeremy, that this was the person who was alien. Yet now that I know, it makes total sense. Well, good. I, I guess I did my job on both ends. In my, I honored my obligations to her and to the reader. Absolutely. So let's kind of fast forward to you know, Alien, Cherry's work now sure. uh, you know, at LMG and, and kind of this notion of what, what hacking and cybersecurity are. You know, I've heard you talk about um, what hacking is and isn't. What 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 is it? What do people think it is? And then what is it really in your in your assessment? Wow, what do people think it is? I guess they think it's a teenager in a hoodie or a faceless foreign agent. So there's of. the yeah, there's misconceptions about the people doing it. Yeah. Let's maybe start there. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, our if you do a image search for hacker, you literally get no faces. You just get shadowed figures and hoodies hundreds and hundreds of hits long green lighting I, and yeah I, I showed you know a picture of the google image search for hacker when i was at google and you know they had to kind of laugh because it was like you you're supposed to be the best search engine in the world and you literally don't have enough a face right on this thing that's so important to our society our economy our culture our politics today mm -hmm. and hacking in a similar way has grown up even when we have a face to hacking, it's stuck 40, 30 years old. It's Matthew Broderick in War Games. It's Angelina Jolie in Hackers. And I had this opportunity in this book to follow a hacker, but also a community of hackers and an industry of hacking as it grows up over time. Sure. And so it has grown up. It has become extremely professionalized. And that's on both ends of the equation, what we call white hat hackers, hackers that are the good guys and girls who are here to protect us, and black hat hackers, which are the sort of adversaries or criminals, and gray hat, which are sort of people between who move between both worlds. 
And uh, it was exciting to, you know, get to share some of what that looks like behind the scenes because so few people even have a sense that anyone who's a hacker could be a good guy, much less a person or an adult sure. or the mom, you know, with the kid on, next to you on the playground. Yeah. So um, that's a bit of how the industry has grown up and matured. It sort of didn't exist when she entered it 15 years ago. And now it's, I think, about $140, $150 billion industry, which also has a view into every other aspect of our society because of the work, you know, breaking into things and assessing other break-ins and trying to protect and improve security. I think most people sort of think about it just in terms of like, oh, yeah, somebody hacked my Facebook account or my Instagram and they're posting pictures or following porn stars or just doing something that's generally annoying. Or they've stolen my identity and are running up credit card charges or, you know, things like that um, at the personal level. But that's probably not the bulk of the hacks out there. And it's probably, a, a you know, a, a decades old conception of, of where it's at. Well, I mean, one concept she shared with me of is if something is valuable to you, it's valuable to someone else. Pretty uh, it can be sold on the black market yeah. in that respect. And some things can't be sort of changed and given a new one. You know, it's hard to change your social security number, but forget it. She says those are already all taken. They've been stolen a hundred times. Wow. But your credit card, hey, you can cancel, get a new one. Yep. Now, what about things like your medical history. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't cancel your medical history and get a new one. So that's where, you know, intimate details of our lives are being violated, processed, sold, and other aspects of our lives are being marketed or, you know, used to manipulate us or other people. Well, and that's interesting, too, because, I mean, this is, I don't want to make accusations of corporations being gray hats, but if you think, of, I mean, you mentioned medical history. Mm-hmm. So, it's one thing to hack into a hospital or a medical office, but but there's also, you know, if you look at Google, Facebook, whoever, they, they're creating these huge profiles of us. And, you know, they could be developing algorithms to make predictions about our health and then market us health products. And so, yeah, it's not just it's, – it's, it's, it's not as simple as breaking into a bank. You know, there's a lot of intermediaries that hold a ton of data about us that um, have value. Yeah, I mean, another thing she says all the time is, you know, there are some rules about what a company has to do if they lose your data. There are very few rules about what a company has to do when they use your data. Okay, So explain the difference. Well, you know, if someone has records about you and they get breached, then they're supposed to tell you if there's a certain level of sensitivity, financial or medical. Uh, If someone is marketing to you, selling consumer habits, selling their guess of your political preferences, selling where you live, where you vote, if you're married or not, that's not information that we're privy, that exchange of information we're not privy to. It might not even be accurate. And that gets dangerous too, but the sort of marketing and manipulation of us this is kind of in more your, you know, topic area here at, the, uh, yeah, yeah. here at the B-School. But, um, you know, that's happening too. I think, you know, the bread and butter of the work she and her company do are, one, as I said, they get hired to test security. They get hired to try to break into places and see how they can be broken into in a variety of ways. That could be in person. There's scenes in the book where, you know, she talks yep. and walks her way into a corporate office or a bank vault, or any other kind of setting that could be remote. It could be, you know, classic kind of someone with a laptop at a coffee shop. How far can they get into? There's a scene in the book where she gets into an airline reservation system that way. 
And that could be any other more specialized thing. I mean, I talk to hackers who specialize in lock picking or elevator hacking or a particular kind of software operating system mm -hmm. or car hackers or Internet of Things hackers. And she's got a lot of those, you know, in some sense on her staff. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Mike Morelli, director of the Entertainment Management Program at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. At the same time, how do you catch someone or recover if you've been breached yourself? And in the sort of theory, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Yeah. Often they're the ones who get hired to come in and figure out what happened, what was taken, how to recover, and how to prevent it from happening again. They also do things like digital hostage negotiations. So you get hit by you know, our current big menace ransomware, where your data isn't even stolen. It's just encrypted and locked up in a way that you can't access it yourself. And to yeah, get so the let's key just, from let's the just criminal, pause that. you got to like, negotiate. I don't think people understand that that happens. Data stolen, gets encrypted and housed somewhere else, or you just can't get to your data. Like well, no, this is the brilliance. You don't have to steal the data. They just, you know, the software can encrypt the data on your computer. Okay. So it's not even lost. It's just unusable to you. And then you have to pay a ransom to unlock it. Yeah, you just have, and so they give you a piece of information that's essentially the key to unlock it. So they don't have to do big transfer. It can be a pretty minor thing. And by the time you realize it, you've lost access to your data. It's happened infamously at a series of hospital systems in Los Angeles, a bunch of school systems, but many other law firms and local businesses. I promise you in Missoula and in sure. many other places as well, I think there's a stigma to being hacked so people don't always report it. It is often easier to try to pay the fee. But at the same time, how do you do that, right? Mm -hmm. If someone says, you need to give me $5,000 in Bitcoin in the next 24 hours. I wouldn't even know where to start. Exactly. So mm -hmm. you you know, might call your insurer who might connect you quickly with Sherry and her team. Yep. And they're trying to, A, can we get this out without paying this fee? B, if we need to, how do we negotiate? And then C, if we're negotiating and we are going to move forward with payment, okay, let's get your Bitcoin wallet together. Or so they we'll do, do actual negotiations. Oh, all the time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was funny. I was talking to the Today Show producer who was coming in to film them. And she said, you know, can you record when this happens? And she was just like, this happens almost every day. Hmm, so, just routine. Yeah, this is a typical day in the office is breaking into a bank, doing a Bitcoin negotiation, testing the limits, of, you know, a defense manufacturer, and it's all happening in downtown Missoula, you know, at least as a base. Wow. You know, it kind of makes me think about, um, you know, as, as you've gotten to know this industry and this practice, you know, I, I suppose at every point in history, we've thought that technology is moving faster than it should or could or what, whatever we want to, however we want to describe it. But in this instance, I mean, I, I think about, you know, a few months back when, you know, the leaders of the, a lot of the big tech firms went to Congress and you could just see that the, the members of Congress were kind of out of their depth as to what questions to be asking. And then we have this dynamic of something bad happens, whether it's in the financial markets or in the tech space. And, you know, these, these, the good guys and the bad guys kind of becomes unclear who's who, and sometimes the bad guys get hired as good guys to regulate the bad guys. They used to be those gray hats, as maybe you called them. You thought about that um, tension in these types of situations? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the historical analogies I use is to the field of surgery. Okay. You know, like three, four, five hundred years ago, surgeons were often considered criminals. They were literally body snatchers in hmm. some cases. And people thought they were stealing bodies or killing people to do experiments on them. And sometimes those accusations were true. Sure. Uh, there wasn't uh, a formal system of medical education, and what was happening was happening in the dark, not in the light. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that system has changed. It has become professionalized. It has been brought you know, into the sunshine, and I think we all benefit, uh, and so do surgeons, of course. They have a different kind of status and prestige and level of access and education. And what my hope is is that hackers will experience that similar kind of transition, not because it's not cool to have a kind of shadowy black hat image, but because we need them. We need their help, and we need them to know that uh, we recognize them and them to recognize us and to have that kind of face-to-face -face exchange uh, because they're the ones who understand this system and these systems that we've built our entire society on. I mean, I think there's an irony I often sort of cite where hackers were always playing on the Internet. It was a small playground where people were playing with network computers and doing different kind of pranks and investigations and testing the limits. We then moved our entire society, our economy, our culture, our businesses, our social life onto the internet, onto their playground. Yeah, so in a weird way, great thing. Let's do it. In a weird way, we invaded their world as much as they've invaded ours. And yeah. I think we're all kind of freaking out at that intersection. And I think we have a lot to learn if we can learn to listen to each other. We get so attracted to shiny objects, and you know, don't learn from our historical mistakes. I mean, these things are sort of obvious as you say them, but we still repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And this, this hacking space seems to be another one of those. Well, I don't know if it's a mistake as much as a vulnerability. Yeah, blind spots to risk, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it is really attractive. I mean, she talks about this. She says, you know, online banking, obviously that's risky. Why would you have people you don't see do things remotely with credentials that are really hard to verify? But it's massively more convenient. Super so easy, yeah. it's not about having no risk. It's about facing risk and sort of assessing it, frankly, and then seeing what choices can live with and what you can't live without. I mean, she takes a ton of risks in the book, both physical risks right. and career risks and family and interpersonal risks. So that's part of her personality. She's not against risk-taking, but she is for seeing it for what it is, seeing it clearly and trying to maximize the benefits. Most hackers are into a lot of technology, but they're also savvy enough to know that there's always going to be unintended uses that the designers hadn't envisioned. And the only way to achieve true security is by testing it. And gosh, thinking about risk, how has your relationship to risk changed through the course of this uh, reporting project? I think in my uh, physical life, if you will, um, you know, day to day, what I'm willing to brave and do uh, with my body, it's maybe gotten, maybe I've gotten riskier Good. in the sense of the research for the book. I went to a hacker convention in Vegas, and that took me to a, uh, you know, kind of DIY uh, shooting range in the desert where really? there were drone-driven skeets and people firing in their own homemade cannons and, you know, things like that that even coming from Montana was a little bit beyond the pale for me. Uh -huh. I went to Los Alamos National Laboratory, amazing scientific site, but also 
huge military research site, armed guards, very nervous that I was going to do the wrong thing and, you know, be brought in for questioning or worse. I also had to, you know, uh, have someone take me on a motorcycle ride to sort of recreate some of her adventures there. And probably most perilous of all, you know, do some of the MIT hacking just to kind of be able to walk in those footsteps. And how did you get into that crew? Like, Alien just make a couple calls and she made a couple say, hey, calls. Hey, take yeah. this guy uh, around with you. Yeah, or you know, you get introduced to someone who introduces you to someone sure. else. You go to a hacker convention with twenty thousand people, even if ten thousand don't want to talk to anybody, that's still a pretty wide pool of people who are you know open to maybe entertaining someone if he can hang. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. Like it's got to be an interest, just a different sort of tr- uh, reporting process for you trying to sort of gain trust and access to this group of folks. Yeah, I mean, to me, the most important thing was never to try to blend in. I always tried to blend out. So, you know, I have shorts. I have black T-shirts. I did not wear those to the hacker convention. (laughs) I wore khakis. I wore a buttoned-up shirt because I wanted to say, hey, I'm a writer. I wanted to signal that immediately Mm -hmm. and then say it, you know, quickly and be understood that way. I never wanted a hacker to think I was trying to fool them right. or cross them or get over. They don't like fakery and I don't like fakery. So I just thought, you know, let me be as authentic as I can and, you know, even err on the side of being uh, stodgier than I might sure. otherwise be in my own casual life. Yeah. I thought of Tom Wolf, you know, dressing in a white suit to interview the Hells Angels. Right. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I don't have to go quite that far in either direction, but, uh, you know, that's that's a good model. Yeah, the spirit is there. Um, so you maybe have become a little bit more daring with physical risk. How about other types of risk? I think on the computer stuff, I've become much more conservative. Yeah, you know, I would we imagine. Talk, we talked about, um, you know, how ransomware encrypts your own data so you can't read it yourself. You know, that's encouraged me, on the other hand, to do things like have encrypted email. So when I communicate with people, even if those messages get stolen or breached, whoever stole them can't read them other than the sort of subject line. I mean, that's the sort of promise of encryption. Or uh, encrypt my hard drive. So if the computer is stolen and someone takes out the hard drive, uh, then, you know, it's not readable. I mean, Alien and her team, sometimes, you know, when they're traveling, they lock their hard drives in safes overnight. You know, wow. they're at that level of sort of paranoia. I'm not quite yeah. there, but I'm I'm encrypting it, right? Uh, and, you know, a variety of other precautions. I list them kind of at the end of the book that just sort of, you know, hopefully make me a little bit savvier. And if not free from hacking, uh, not low-hanging fruit that I might have been before. Do these companies... How do these companies compete against each other? Do they hack each other as, as part of their sort of competitive positioning process? Well, it's a new field, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's a little bit of scandal, a little bit of Silicon Valley. And I mean that in sort of the TV show references. For sense. sure. So like tech, there's a lot of creative disruption, a lot of, you know, poaching friendly rivalry. I mean, Sherry refers to people as frenemies often. Yeah. And that could be your client. You yeah. know, that could be a competitor. That could be your old boss. That could be your former employee. And I think people do have a lot to gain from each other as well as to lose. So I think in general, um, it's a friendly competition, but it's also very fierce. I mean, there's a, you know, how she got her first job in that sort of penetration testing field is she won what they call a capture the flag contest, mm-hmm. which is you're sort of hacking your sort of opponents' teams to try to get things on their computer. They're trying to hack things to get them on yours. These are extremely common at any kind of hacking uh, conference or convention. They love games. They love these kind of adversarial, you know, pursuits. And 
it is though in the spirit of learning and fun and then people hopefully share and teach each other too. So as you've been traveling around sort of promoting the book and, and speaking to interested constituents, what have been, have there been any themes with the feedback or surprises you know, or you know, responses to the work that were unanticipated? I think, you know, of course, people are surprised that a hacker can be a woman. They are surprised mm. that a hacker can be a mother. They're surprised that a hacker can be a grown-up. Yep. And those are kind of obvious in retrospect, but until you get your first example, if you've never seen a face, you've never seen that example, uh, it can challenge your stereotype. I think the other thing is that they're surprised that hacking can be so much broader than just someone typing at a keyboard. This idea of lock picking or building hacking or social engineering, which is, you know, hacking human beings by manipulating them with just your words. Yeah. To kind of get into spaces or get them to open their doors for you. And that's at the basis of the kind of phishing emails or the fake, you know, uh, scam phone calls that we you know, get it all the time. But a lot of those are the basis for some of the biggest data breaches we have today. So, Jeremy, I'd like to pivot a little bit and, and speak more about kind of your your, your writing background style and um, you kind of where you're at next. Uh, so you did your undergraduate work at Harvard. You did your Master's of Fine Arts here in the creative writing program. That's right. Is that right? And you've chosen to make your home Missoula, why have you found Missoula to be um, the place for you and your family? Well, Missoula is great for a lot of reasons. First of all, I'm surrounded by really smart people who are smart about things I'm not smart about. Mm. Uh, you know, my kind of areas of expertise, if you will, are like words and numbers. You know, I often like to say, you know, I'm good at everything that doesn't exist. And <laughs> in like Missoula, that. you know, there are people who are really good at things that exist, yeah. whether that's wildlife, farming, beer, uh, beer uh, rivers, mountains. Uh, the stars, you know, so I, you know, have learned so much in these 15 plus years I've been here. And there's just always people that I can bump into and say, wow, uh, you're a master morel mushroom hunter. Can sure. I follow you around? Wow, you are tracking wild buffalo. Can I follow you around? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and wow, you're starting this network of community farms and gardens. Can I follow you around? And so I love that you know, chances are there's going to be someone I haven't met with a really interesting story to learn from, whether they're a topic of a writing assignment or just someone to have a cool conversation and learn from. The other thing is, of course, it's a great place to kind of make your life into a permanent writing retreat. Right, uh, right. So, you know, I can hike up a mountain every day at lunch, right? I can drop in a river for a little bit on a paddleboard. I can go cross country skiing around the park outside my house. And these are great ways to kind of be rejuvenated, fresh, refresh my mind, and still be connected to people. And there's good food, and it's, it's a hard place financially to get ahead, but it's fairly easy or has been to get by. So, you know, I could live on very little money, and that was the plan. Yeah, talk us through that a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, sure. so many, I shouldn't say so many, but many people here in Missoula have you know, they're, they're, that was kind of one of the big themes of this podcast. You got to be creative to kind of put together a portfolio of things that sort of roll up into a job that allows you to sustain the life you want. And there's a lot of different iterations of that here. You know, as as a writer, you know, what's that process like? I mean, you, you you get paid by the book or the article or whatever. How do you kind of how do you how do you manage keeping it afloat? 
Yeah. So in the past, it was to live extremely lightly. You know, it was yeah. like uh, high four figures was high. You sure. know, so it was like, I mean, I remember emailing someone several years into being in Missoula and being like, you know, I'm making about $9,000 a year right now. And if I made like 12, I'd, you know, be pretty set. And yeah. she was trying to like be a writer in New York. Oh, and so, you know, that was, uh, she responded with incredulity. And, yeah. you know, but that's, let me have a long apprentice stage. I'll just put it kindly there. And frankly, when I was making $10,000 a year from writing, that was, it still is pretty much more than almost anybody I knew who was making money from writing. Sure. I mean, that's just, it's not, it's a great way to learn, explore, have a good life, but it's the artist's life. It's just like being a painter uh, or a sculptor. It's not like being a, uh, I don't know, internet entrepreneur or something like that. There could be a an upside, I guess, if something gets becomes a bestseller, it gets turned into a movie or something. But, you know, even writing articles for pretty prestigious publications, it just takes a while. And even if they pay, you know, as much as $2 a word, yep. um, you know, you might be spending a couple months to make $6,000, which at that time was amazing. I mean, that was something I could live on for a year, you know, if I did that. So um, I've had the good fortune to have my last two books be of sufficient potential public interest that uh-huh. the publishers gave, you know, larger advances. And again, these are, again, on a writer's scale. So I'm making, you know, much more money than I was before sure. or almost any other writer that I knew, but much less than like almost anyone with an actual job. But then when you get an advance, I mean, then you kind of become, I mean, in many ways, you're the owner of a small business, which is yourself. You're the CEO of yourself. So you get this advance and then you have, you have to decide the allocation of budget to fund these trips to conferences, to MIT, to... Sure, right. You don't get expenses paid. Yeah. And it's often, the advance itself is often divided into sort of quarters. In other words, you might get a quarter on signing, a quarter on delivery, a okay. quarter on publication, and a quarter on paperback publication. Sure. That would be not atypical. But that doesn't mean that I might get paid once and not get paid again for two two years. Yeah. And so, yeah, it becomes a big pacing thing. And again, having those sort of pre-advanced appetites and lifestyle. I mean, I spend money pretty freely on books and food. And that's, those are kind of my expenses. I don't even have a car. You know, I had a canoe, yeah. you know, before we even had a shared car between me and my wife. And so um, that's kind of, you know, the the basis I use. And Hopefully, you know, it's 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 worked out so far. Uh, again, it's not a, a great way to get ahead, but I've been fortunate enough to be here long enough and get to do this. I, I guess every time I get to do it again, I feel like, wow, I got to do this again. And I don't I don't take it for granted. I I don't assume I'll get to do it again, right. you know, even now. And so I've, you know, maybe I will and maybe I'll bump into something else, but that I've been, you know, uh, able to fool them this long is is uh, is good, and hopefully I'll get to a point. I figure if I can do it till my fifty, I'll till I'm fifty, I'll have made myself unfit for any actual employment. I mean, if you haven't had a job before you're fifty, I mean, who would hire you? So hopefully I'll, that'll be my way in or way out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good pitch. Thanks. Right, and so speaking of doing it again, like what where where are you at in that process? I know that's a dangerous question as writers, like what's the next project, but. I am going to a bar after this recording 
and I'm hoping I'm going to. And I'm not invited. It. You're you're invited. It's a, it's a PTA fundraiser, and I know oh, our nice. kids are uh, at the same uh, school. So our goals align there. So yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully I'll just bump into somebody. That's uh, you know, it's a crazy thing where you're telling true stories, and they're other people's true stories. If I keep that up, that just means I got to bump into somebody be open and have one thing lead to another. They don't have to be in Missoula. That hasn't always been my topic, sure. but you got to be open or I generate a project by doing my own, you know, I'm the experimenter, I'm the subject in some way, mm. you know, whether whatever form that takes or um, it's more reported based on a topic, which is another whole genre of nonfiction books. I say, okay, I want to look at the future of, you know, telecommunications, or I want to look at, uh, you know, immigration in this country. And I kind of find the topics from there. But so far, I've always found the people first. Yeah, that's interesting process question. I mean, I think of comparing people to other writers is always fraught. I, I, but, you know, when I when I read your work, work, I, I think of Michael Lewis, a little bit like he, he illuminates important issues through characters and, and your, your stories sort of not stories, but your books sort of do the same thing. How, yeah, you, you said you found the people first, but you know, where does, where does, how does it work? Do you find the people? Do you find the issue? What's most interesting? Is yeah. All, I'm sure it's all of it, but. Well, there's this sort of not paradox, but sort of dual existence where when I'm in a project, I go deeper and deeper and I call it kind of submarining and I'm hiding from the world. I'm getting, you know, more and more, uh, into it. I'm not even reading outside topics as much. I'm not talking to people. Mm. Uh, you know, my uh, shaving and bathing routines become ever more strained. Uh, you know, I'm not a pleasant person to hang out with necessarily because I'm not really present. These, these just seem like such common stereotypes for writers. There you go. <laughs> um, and when I'm done with a book, then I have to do the opposite. I have to be totally open. And, you know, luckily that's, you know, my hopeful little default i'd like i'm interested in people i want to hear their stories and so just kind of saying hey what do you do or you know what what are you thinking about or that's a cool poster let me go to that event and see what i hear and you know there's a million things that i could pursue or even think of pursuing you know for every one or two i actually do and then those i do you know only a, a teeny number pan out into something that you know, I can sell or package or the timing's right or the cooperation or access is right. So it's a, it's a funny kind of winnowing. I'm a kind of talent scout for myself. I like that. Talent scout for yourself. We should all be that. Yeah. I suppose. Why not? So um, in closing here, Jeremy, uh, give us three book recommendations. Ooh. What are you reading right now that you'd recommend to others? Um, I just read Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, novel. Super interesting, very hot book right now, uh, sort of female friendships, fluid sexuality, mm-hmm. betrayals. Awesome. Um, I read, a, again, another novel, but this almost felt like nonfiction reportage called The Heart a couple of years ago. It was okay. translated from the French, and it follows a heart in a human being. Oh, wow. As it kind of, it starts with like a kid who's going surfing and something bad happens and, you know, it ends up, you know, being a a potential transplant, sort of following the heart from sort of start to finish. Amazing. And, you know, I think deeply reported, you know, you mentioned Michael Lewis, you know, huge fan of anything he does, anything, you know, John McPhee does, um, some of my kind of role models in the nonfiction side. 
But um, I've been reading lots of little books, too. You know, my friend Keisha Schlegel has a series of literary essays called Fear Icons, and they're based on a series of people or objects or topics that she or others of us are afraid of, and she kind of riffs on them, whether it's our current president or Liberace or, you know, Dolly Parton, uh, you know, aging or (laughs) her kids, you know, getting sick or anything like that. And they're just short, but they're super sharp and, and beautiful. So I recommend that on the kind of nonfiction side. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for doing this a second time. I appreciate that. And and, and most of all, thanks for telling these great stories and uh, yeah, exposing this this unbelievable interest, unbelievably interesting world to, to all of us. Uh, where can people find the book? Anywhere, Here in town. Anywhere, everywhere books are sold. Uh, Fact and Fiction uh, was my launch bookseller. And so I know they've got a bunch of signed ones, but I'm sure they've got them at the other bookstores in town too. Super. I encourage everybody to check it out. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Okay. Check out Jeremy's book, Breaking and Entering, wherever you buy your books. And coming up next week, we have Suzanne Miller, creator of Days at Dunrovin, an amazing and unlikely social media venture happening on the banks of the Bitterroot River. Learn all about it next week. Thanks for listening to New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, part of the Michelle and Lauren Hansen Media Lab at the University of Montana College of Business. Remember that this podcast was supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you'd ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.